We're taking a break this morning from our time in the book of Acts. Have you been enjoying that series? It's been tremendously powerful for us. And, um, you know, one of the things that's, that's most exciting to me in, in preaching this and in studying it is that you certainly hope as a pastor of a church that, you know, some of the things that was happening in the early church, that you really hope and pray those things were happening in your church. Not Ananias and Sapphira, but, you know, the other parts you're really hoping are happening in your church. Um, and it is a privilege to say we see those things here at CBC. So this morning, as we navigate away from the early church, we're going to navigate up to the Mount of Olives, and we're going to navigate to a little town called Bethany. I don't know what that was. We're going to navigate to a little town called Bethany. And uh, just an exciting time. Uh, how many of you uh, ever wasted time? You know, this is, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pan out wide on the camera right now. Because I want to go back and look at who raises their hands on this. How many of you wasted your life? watching soap operas growing up. Days of our lives, General Hospital. As the world turns, Dukes of Hazard. Yes, Dukes of Hazard. Some people, yeah, yeah. Uncle Jesse, that's my guy. Um, we are entering into a week that in the scriptures it turns on a dime. It absolutely turns on a dime. There is so much drama in this week. And so rather than just pick one thing, we're, we're going to do a little bit of a survey. I, I want to walk you through. I want to prepare you. I want to get your minds and your hearts leading into what's happening this week. So when we come back together Friday night, I encourage you, get into the gospel this week. See where, whether it's John 12 or it's uh, Mark 11, get into those passages and you're going to see a Jesus that's pretty dramatic. Let's pray. Father, there is so much that we are going to see and that we are going to experience in your word in the next few moments. I feel convicted that the strongest takeaway today is for each of us to get to know Jesus better. Many of us have been in relationship for a long time. Some of us are brand new into this. But no matter how far we've walked on that spiritual journey on that path, Father, to know Jesus is never-ending. To develop a deeper understanding of Christ is never ending. And to know how to please Him and live in light of, of His love and it, of, of His instruction, of His wisdom, is a pursuit worth running after, worth chasing. So this morning, Father, we chase after Jesus. Let us chase 
with open arms. To you be all glory. Amen. Well, I already told you a little bit about um, some of my opportunities that I've had to be in the Holy Land. And we're working on setting up a trip for March next year. So start saving, I'm not going to say pennies, it's a little bit more than your pennies. But start saving at least your quarters, if not your dollars. Because it is life-changing. These stories absolutely become alive. And so I think it was maybe my sixth time that I'd been there. I was there setting up another missions trip, and I had brought one of my staff with me. And we were staying in the Palestinian Hotel, just inside Joppa Gate, which is a downgrade from a youth hostel. Uh, it was... It was about as disgusting of a hotel as I have ever stayed in. We turned around to go in, in, and look at the shower, which was in the room. It's just a nozzle, and, and it just sprays into the room. And there's a moldy bath mat that's sitting there in the corner, and I think something moved underneath it. Um, you walk through the lobby, and it's like you were entering into Alibaba's um, den of thieves. I kid you not. Hookah, hookah lamps everywhere. Um, there were pictures. I, I don't even know what was in the picture because there was so much soot and, and incense. And it's like we stepped back in time. And so we really wanted to kind of grasp that since we were already thrust into fourth world um, living conditions. Um, and so we thought, hey, let's get a taxi. This is before Uber, right? We got a taxi to the Mount of Olives one morning, pre-dawn. And we wanted to walk down the Mount of Olives like Christ would have. Not necessarily during the triumphal entry. During the triumphal entry, it certainly seems it was during kind of rush hour, if you will. But during the times of, of his uh, goings to and fro on the Passion Night, on the night he was betrayed, we wanted to have that sense. We wanted to have that early sense. And so we got dropped off on the top of Mount of Olives and a miracle happened. Sitting, squatting, kind of on the sidewalk, next to an old brick building, was an Arab in a white, I think it was a Bedouin, and he was in a white, long um, sheet, um, cloth, and he had a turban on, and he had a little burner. And in that burner he had a and in that tin I feel like this is a nursery rhyme and in that tin was aluminum foil coming out over the top and I could see some steam rising and so I walked over and there in the pre-dawn hours of the Mount of Olives as I'm ready to engage my Lord and Savior and walk through the spiritual journey I smell Turkish miracles still happen. And the hospitality was incredible. Yeah, ask any of our Egyptians. I know three Arabic words, and coffee is not one of them. And I probably don't pronounce those three Arabic words correctly. So somehow, through the, the, the graciousness and just the connection, he served us Turkish coffee. Now, have you, anybody here, I mean, that's not Egyptian, had Turkish coffee? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It'll keep you going for about five days. Red Bull's got nothing 
on Turkish coffee. And Turkish coffee, you get about that much liquid and that much solid in the bottom of the, of, of the cup. And it's just one shot. Espresso is like an anemic version of Turkish coffee. And so we loaded up two cups each. And now we're ready to go for the rest of the day. And we walked down the Mount of Olives as the sun was rising up over the back of the Mount of Olives. And we had walked um, just to the right of the city of Bethany. Bethany, as you're coming up from Jericho, you come up, and there's only one road that you would have taken, the Wadi Kelt Road. And you come up through that road, and you come up the back through Bethage and Bethany. Two small little bergs. How many of you know where Walden is in, in, in our sea? None of you know where Walden is. Bob Huffman used to work in Walden. All right? When you're going down Treat and you get to the Renaissance, that's Walden. For about 500 feet that way and 500 feet that way. I don't know if some guy named Joe Walden lived there and they named it after him, but that's about the size of Bethany, folks. It is, it's not even a burg. You couldn't call it Bethaburg, okay? It doesn't fit. It's not Bethanyville. It's just Bethany. It's probably suited for one person named Bethany. That's how small it is. But there was a family that lived there, and we'll get to them in a moment. This is where Jesus stayed during the Holy Week. So as you think about this this coming week, I want you to think about the layover in Bethany. What would Jesus have been thinking? Because we have all the narrative, all of his interactions, all of the drama, all the intensity that was happening there at the temple. Day after day, he would walk down the Mount of Olives. He would walk over the Kidron Valley up into the temple, and he would deal, and he would deal. And there are times in, in certain Gospels where we see that as he was looking over Jerusalem, this is where he curses the fig tree. This is where you see so much emotion from Christ that as he's standing on the Mount of Olives, he looks to Jerusalem and it says he weeps over Jerusalem because they will reject him. This is the week we're heading into. And yet every night, Jesus would travel back up the Mount of Olives and stay in the house of Simon the leper and rest. What would have been going on in his mind day after day after day? Not only knowing what was coming, but just the interactions and the drama of him weeping over Jerusalem, knowing full well he'd be going right back in there the next day. Let's look at the passage. This morning, turn to Mark chapter 11. We've already read it once, but let me go over it one more time. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which to one has never sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. <coughs> Excuse me. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They let them go. 
And it says then, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. This would be as if you got a brand new car. Now, when you go to Jerusalem, when you go to the Holy Land, you see donkeys everywhere. And you see people riding donkeys. They're still used to this day as a, a part of the labor force. But you see people riding them all the time. Who is it that we know rode a donkey? Mary, right? What we have here is, is pretty significant. We have a donkey that's never been ridden. Now, if you were to give up your donkey at that point in time, this would be paramount to somebody just walking up, a complete stranger walking up to you saying, I need to borrow your car. Oh, okay, here you go. Oh, but wait. How many of you have a brand new car? Anybody got a brand new car? Okay, Joe, what do you got? Great choice. Consumer Index, five-star, J.D. Power, all that stuff. Don't listen to those Chevy commercials. All right? Great choice. Brand new car. Uh, let's just say... Um, Garrett, right over here, he walks up to you after service and he says, hey Joe, I need your car. And you, we won't finish this out because we don't want Joe to feel badly, but you get the point, right? Now here's the interesting thing, is that a cult that had not been written was reserved for royalty. This goes back to the Old Testament. It was reserved for royalty. And there just happens to be a cult there. And Jesus happens to know this. There are miracles on the Mount of Olives. And so he sends his disciples in what? In twos, just like he had trained them. Again, you're going to go as two. And do they deviate from the plan? They don't deviate at all. They say exactly what Jesus said. And what happens? You've got to be thinking. I'm thinking it. You're thinking it, right? I don't want this job. Are you kidding me? And you're muttering the entire time. You're kind of going all Jonah on this. You're like, we're going to walk up to this guy. We got, first of all, we've just got to find a colt sitting somewhere that's not been used. Oh, look, there's a colt. Imagine that. And uh, um, was there a, a car by Ford named the Colt? I just, I just, anybody own that one? Oh, Dodge. Here's our car connoisseur. Yes, a Dodge Colt. It had nothing to do with this Colt. Okay. But you walk up and, and there's this Colt, and so you follow through with what Jesus asked, and you say, what? Hey, the Lord needs this Colt. Now, based off the response, there's an inference that the person knew who the disciples were referring to. This is important. Why? Because Jesus has already made a name for himself. He's already drawn crowds to him. This is his third time to, to Jerusalem and his final time. He's already made a name for himself. As a matter of fact, there were thousands of pilgrims coming up for Passover. Remember how we talked about this with the day of Pentecost, right? That all, all of these individuals were coming for Passover from all over the land. And there's only one road up to Jerusalem out of the Negev and out of the desert. And so they're all traveling the Wadi Kelt, and word would have gotten out. From the time that Jesus was in Jericho, and he, this is the moment that he speaks to Zacchaeus, right? And this is the moment that as they're walking up the Wadi Kelt, the famous discourse where Jesus is telling his disciples that I must go and die, and that I would be raised on the third day, and, 
And this is where all of this is happening. But I always kind of pictured it that they were alone. Did you? They're having these private conversations. Brothers, sisters, they're in a caravan, much like Mary and Joseph, right? You've heard this one, that they're on the caravan going back to Nazareth. And it took a few days for them to figure out, uh, I thought you had Jesus. Uh, I thought you had Jesus. And, and we've had that explanation. How could they get two days down the road and not know that they didn't have Jesus? And the idea is that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people traveling together. Get that picture in your mind. And so probably what has happened here is word has already come to the region. The Lord is on the way. So when the disciples come to this owner and they say, the Lord has need of it, he will return it. There's no hesitation. There's no hesitation to give the most valued possession for the Lord Jesus. That's something to grab from today. So then what happens? And so they brought the colt to Jesus, and it says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Let me speak to that for just a moment. Laying down of the cloaks had to do with going back to the Old Testament kings. And, and in particular, one king, as he entered in, uh, there was a, a uh, procession. And there became a tradition that was started at that time to lay down cloaks, to do this act of humility, to show exultation. That, that the procession, you're not even worthy because you are so exalted, you are not even worthy for your cult to strike the very ground that we walk on. And so we want to put ourselves in an act of submission and subjection to show ourselves subjected to you, our king. That's what's happening here. There's something very dramatic going on. Palm branches. Have you ever been, your house is one of those spots that's on the, on the road where people walk by all the time? Right? We had those, those plum trees that the city plants, you know, along the meridians all the time in neighborhoods. Hated that. Because... At, at a certain time, young boys loved those plums as weapons against each other. And they're just free for the taking. And so they would be grabbing these out of the trees. And, and we'd find our cars splattered with plum juice, our house splattered with plum juice. And so that's kind of what's happening here is that as they're going up this road or as they're coming down, they are just grabbing palms. They're ripping them off the trees. They are compelled to do this action. Why? It's a sign of nationalism. The palm was like the national tree of Israel, if you will. And so it had a symbolic meaning of, and you heard the statement, right? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, Jehovah, David. Finally, Israel is vindicated from the heavy hand of Rome. The Messiah is coming. We will be justified finally as a nation. And so they're grabbing these palm fronds to send this message. This is what Palm Sunday was about to them. This is what Palm Sunday was about. And so they're saying, Hosanna. They're screaming, Hosanna. And this is a term that means, come save us. Come save us. And some scholars think because it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that they weren't necessarily looking at Messiah as one who would save them from sin, but Messiah would save them from the oppression of Romans, and that there would be this sense 
of national pride, national establishment, kind of going back to the golden years of Solomon, right? The majesty of the kingdom. And even the disciples wrestled with this a little bit, right? Because they're arguing on the past sometimes, who will be first? You know, Jesus, why are you not setting up your kingdom here? This was very much in the mindset of the, of the Jewish thinker. So their day has come. He's coming, he's coming. And he's made a prolific statement by getting this cult. All this time, even in the Galilee region, when he was preaching, when he was healing, people would say, rise up, take your kingship. And he would disappear. My time has not yet what? Come. Now is the time. Can you imagine how excited you would be? Our lives are changing. Free health care for everybody. And it's not going to cost us anything. Think about how excited you would be about that, right? That pales in comparison to what was going on here. And so it says what? And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he does this big procession, goes to the temple, surveys. He hasn't been to the temple for a while. Surveys all that's going on. He's kind of doing a reconnaissance trip here, right? I just want to make sure that the state I left this place in is exactly where it was, you know, when I left. It's still stinking it up the same way now because I've been thinking about what I'm going to say. I've been plotting about what needs to be stated. I've been choosing my words carefully. And Jesus walks in and sees what he sees. And he says, okay, enough, let's go. Back up to Simon the leper's house. So much more happens than this. But again this morning, I encourage you. Do you celebrate the entry of Christ into your life as these people celebrated? Or even better, as these people celebrated his entry into Jerusalem. And as we celebrate that today, do we do so with a proper understanding and a proper agenda and a proper focus on Jesus rather than our own needs? Because these people wanted to manipulate Jesus. Let's look at some points this morning. So we talked about the layover in Bethany and how this week is filled with so much drama. Let me encourage you. Drama isn't always a pejorative, right? And so why, why am I saying this? Because I live with two high school girls. And every time you hear the word drama, it's always a pejorative. You know, stop the drama. There's so much drama at school. You know, right? Yeah, that's Gentry's voice. There's so much drama at school. It's not always a pejorative. One of the things I want us to focus on this morning is that Jesus is a paradigm shift that results in bold decisions. We preached about the church being bold a few weeks ago. But Jesus is this paradigm shift. You're going to see it this week that 
that everybody had this understanding, all of these pilgrims walking down the road, they say, Messiah is coming, it's over, the Romans are done. Do you know what happened? Read the Antiquities by Josephus. Oh, the horror. Oh, the horror. And just as Jesus said, not one stone will remain upon another stone at this temple. It is exactly as he says. And since that time, the Jews have been displaced. From 70 A.D., the Jews have not had a home until recently in Israel. And what did they think was happening? You talk about missing the boat. They thought it was over. They thought the millennial kingdom was coming. And so when we think about the paradigm shift, something greater happened here than what the Jewish nation wanted. And sometimes I wonder if we do that, right? That we want Jesus on our terms. That Jesus had better show up and do this and accomplish this. And yet, had Jesus accomplished that, it would have just been for those people at that time and what would have happened to you and I. Had Jesus not stuck with the plan... Had Jesus acquiesced to what the people wanted that day on the triumphal entry, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. He would have set up a temporary time, a temporary kingdom, and you and I would have never been the benefactors upon millions upon millions upon millions. But God had a plan, and it was greater than the plan of the people. He has, Jesus is a paradigm shift, and it results in bold decisions. Some of those decisions you're going to see coming up. Number two, the disciples, they bring this unridden cult, and it's, it's a signification of royalty. It's, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 9 speaks to this whole part about Messiah and how he will enter in and he will set up his kingdom. This is why they're saying these things. They recognize it. They bring the parallels together. The moment has come. It's exciting. It's not a pejorative. It's an exciting time. People were compelled to proclaim their new king. So, he goes in and he surveys the status of the temple. And it's not good. It's not good. Drama is always polarizing. Jesus challenges so that you either hate him or you love him. So what happens... Now, well, Jesus goes back up to Bethany, and if you look in 11, um, pick it up verse 12. On the following day, okay, we're in day two. This doesn't go well if you're a horticulturist, okay? On the following day, when they came from Bethany, again, he had a layover in Bethany, he was hungry, all right? Speaking to the humanity of Christ. He was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. More has been said about this fig tree in Bible studies, BSF, pulpits around the world. So if I don't say your particular nugget of wisdom, please forgive me, it would take me a week to give you all the hypothesis of the significance of what happens here. But we're going to focus on one thing. But it's very dramatic. 
So Jesus is hungry. He sees the fig tree in the distance and it's in leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Not the Jesus I thought I was getting. Have you been in those days? Not the Jesus I thought I was getting. Can you just hear Bartholomew and Andrew? Did he really just curse the fig tree? Man, he's hangry. Yeah, 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 yeah. You see what I did there, right? Right? That might be the next Snickers commercial, right? Jesus dressed up as somebody else, and then he gets the fig, and, and he's, he's back. He's angry. You've got to look deeper. Remember, Jesus is a polarizing figure. And this is pretty dramatic. What's Jesus got against the life force of this tree anyway? See, here's part of what you can learn from this fig tree. It's, it says it's in leaf. When it's in leaf in April, the leaves produce buds, and those buds eventually turn into figs. Now, the buds are edible. So all you vegetarians out there, yes, Jesus ate vegetation. It was on his diet. But he also ate fish. So there you go. Probably ate lamb, too. So I really just, that was not in the notes. It just, it just kind of ran out there. But he walks up to the fig tree, and he's hungry, and he's going after these buds that are edible, and they, they provide nutrition. This tree had none when it should have. Now, on a cursory level, you look, and you get polarized sometimes because you get frustrated at events, or you get frustrated with people, or sometimes we get frustrated with Jesus, that he doesn't show up the way we think he should show up. On a cursory level, we would look at the fig tree and we would say, it should, this time of year, it should have buds. I should be able to get something from it. Right? Just like Jesus. I should be able to get. See, here's the thing about a fig tree is that it takes a few years to mature before those buds ever happen. But it's still going to cycle through its leaves. It's going to look like it should. You hear what I'm saying, right? It's going to look like it should. And yet, what did Jesus do? He cursed it. Why? What's in the distance? Where is he going? What is about to happen? What drama is about to unspill and unfold that will be polarizing? The religious leaders look as if they should know how to feed Israel. And yet they produce no fruit. This is what Christ was speaking to. So sometimes we look at this and we say, wow, I've never seen Jesus get, you know, you've got to be kidding me. He's getting angry at a tree. You've got to take a deeper look as to what's going on. And sometimes when things don't look, they, they look a certain way, but they just don't produce fruit. This is what I want you to remember about this week. If Jesus walked up, would we receive a blessing or a curse? 
because we say we want to look this way, and yet there's no fruit that's happening. There's no fruit that's happening. Jesus challenges so that you either hate him or you love him. Jesus said this, right? He said, they hated me. They are going to hate what? You also, if you follow me. Drama leads to life changes. This morning as we focus on this last point, we're going to lead to three questions that are in your notes. <clears throat> if I can bring up my screen again, there we go. Jesus was triumphant in his entry to Jerusalem. Is he triumphant in his entry to your life? That's the big question this morning. Jesus' strategy during the Holy Week was full of drama and intensity. Let's turn to John 12. One of the things that you need to know as a Bible scholar is that not all the stories that are in the Gospels are chronological. You see, what we have is we, as Mark records it, which is Peter's account, is that Jesus comes up out of Jericho. <coughs> he stays in Bethany. Um, but they ha he has him just traveling in one sort of sequence, going to the temple and then returning up, right? And then going back up to Bethany. There was something very unique and special that happened in Bethany that I want us to look at out of John 12. And, and this is where John accounts to this. So let's look, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Drama. I mean, this is, this is the part every actress would love to have. Right? They don't necessarily want, uh, want Martha's role. Very, you know very uh, supporting actress-like. This one is like the, I'm going to break the ointment, I'm going to pour it on my Savior's feet, I'm going to use my hair. Oh my goodness, the drama of it all, right? The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Oh, but there's more drama. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii was a year's wages. Do you have something that you've been nestling away that's an investment? That at some point in time, you know, you're going to live off that. Or, or you're going to utilize that for the Lord and, and you really want to see it exponentially used somehow. And then somebody just comes along and eats it up like that. That's our situation. Now, how many of us would identify with Mary? And how many of us would identify with what Judas said? Just so you're clear, in other Gospels, when you see this story, the other disciples were ticked off as well. This was not the plan for this resource. What we have is a picture of unprecedented, dramatic exaltation. So get your mind wrapped around that and why that is so important because it leads to a life change. It leads to a life change. 
And so what else happens? So Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because of the money bag he used to help himself to and what was put into it. Jesus said, you're right, Judas. Gosh, Mary, you jerk. Knock it off. As a matter of fact, you really need to leave, you know, because we can't have you as part of this leadership team anymore. You really blew it here. Um, as a matter of fact, Mary, this is kind of like embezzling from, from the church. You know, you selfishly took something that was set aside for, like, the building fund, and you chose to use it just for exalting God. And so, um, you're out. Maybe it says it in Greek, I don't know. Leave her alone! so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What's going on here? Drama leads to life changes. Jesus was triumphant on his entry to Jerusalem. Is he triumphant in your entry to your life? He was for Mary. Mary understood what was happening. She was one of the few that did in the room that night at this banquet. By the way, this banquet was at Simon the leper's house You've got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who's been raised from the dead. Crowds had gathered. You'll see this in other Gospels. Crowds had gathered. Pharisees knew that Lazarus was there. It was causing a huge commotion. They're not in some little small, quiet house in some backwards place called Bethany that nobody ever goes to. They're in a small house in Bethany where everybody went to. The people knew Jesus was in town. And you'll see in other accounts of this that they were all outside. There were great crowds there. But what was going on inside is Simon the leper, who was probably healed by Jesus on one of his trips to Jerusalem, wanted to honor Jesus, and so he sets up this banquet for he and his close friends and the disciples. And Mary understood. And there's a life change that happens for her. She says what? You deserve all. You deserve all. You see, in just a few short hours, as he goes down, because this is before the triumphant entry, in just a few short hours, he will go down the Mount of Olives, and people will say, give it your all. Make it all happen for us. But Mary, because of the triumphant entry of Christ into her heart. I give you all. And I'm going to be so bold and dramatic to take something that may or may not have been mine. Maybe it was something that was passed down. A lot of scholars feel like that was an inheritance that may have been Mary's, but it was probably agreed upon that they would sell that and, and parse that out to the poor and use it that way. So what does Jesus say? You'll always have the poor. But exaltation and worship to me, do not disregard that. Do not disregard that. As we think about that this morning, when we think about what happened in the room of this house with a layover in Bethany. Jesus goes down to the temple each day 
He cleanses the temple. You guys remember that one, right? Jesus with some muscle and a whip. Again, polarizing people. Either you were behind him and you, you loved that, right? Or you were, he just ruined my business. Or he's getting all the people to follow him and the people are not following us anymore. And scripture says not only were the Pharisees planning on killing Jesus, they were going to kill Lazarus too. Because Lazarus was an inconvenient truth. There was power behind. That's why all the people were gathering outside this house. Hey guys, that dead guy isn't dead. He's right in there. And the guy that made it happens right there. We love Jesus. And he's making a triumphant entry. And so he goes down and he takes Jerusalem, his city, and he establishes his kingdom. And he sets up his throne upon David's throne. He says, now I take what is rightfully mine and I rule with compassion and grace. No, he didn't do any of that. He went down into the city and he said, my father's house should be a house of prayer. Get out. He went down to the city and he cursed a fig tree. He went down to the city and he was questioned about his authority. And his authority and how he spoke transformed lives. But listen to this carefully, brothers and sisters. The same people that were yelling Hosanna a few days later on Friday will yell crucify him. Oh, the drama of this week. And oh, the mess that we are as selfish people. That we put an agenda on Jesus' entrance and we miss it. Jesus has come to give you and me life and life to the full. And in order for that to happen, He had to conquer over sin and death. If Jesus had set up His kingdom like everybody thought was supposed to happen, that cross would have zero significance. This morning I have four questions for you. Four key questions for the Holy Week. Number one, do you want Jesus or seek Jesus for the wrong reasons? Like so many that were proclaiming Hosanna that day. Consider for yourself, why do you seek Jesus? Why do you seek Jesus? Secondly, are you willing to speak against a culture gone wrong? Because Christ was. Because the depth of what's important is the true spiritual walk, the true worship. Mary had it. Mary had it. And when Judas let that bitterness reside in his heart because Jesus didn't fit, Judas became polarized. Not just against Jesus, but against God the Father's plan and God the Father's will, which is good for us. And it drove him to, well, you know the story. Are you more like Jesus or Judas? Or are you more like Mary? Are you more like Judas or are you more like Mary? What would Jesus speak into your life this week? You meet him on the road. 
you've had your Turkish coffee. And all of a sudden you hear in the distance crowds and a rumble coming and you're wondering, what is going on? And so you walk up and you start to see palm fronds waving and you see people throwing their coats down and, and here comes this guy that you heard about that raised someone from the dead. And they're proclaiming him as Messiah and you know what Messiah means. It means freedom for you. And so Jesus comes up to you and he looks you in the eye from sitting upon that colt. What would he speak to you this week? Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, just listen. Just listen. Get into the rest of the drama of the story. But it is a fascinating thing that Jesus had a layover in Bethany. This morning, as we wrap, I encourage you, Look at the story of, the, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at who He is. So that you might know Him, not project your version onto Him of what you want Him to be. But look to Him. And look at individuals like Mary, of Lazarus, of Peter, and on and on and on as we look at this incredible, real-life drama. Gather with us Friday night for an incredibly powerful time of service and bring someone. I think people brought individuals. And it, it's, it's understood that as the commotion was coming down the Mount of Olives, people from Jerusalem heard it and could see it. You can see it. You can see it from most spots in Jerusalem. You can look over the Mount of Olives and you would have seen what the procession coming. And people would have come out to meet Jesus. And the moment was here. Brothers and sisters, the moment is here. Bring someone Friday night that they might hear the power of the cross. Let's close in prayer. And this morning, just like Mary, if you have brought your gift, um, thank you so much. Um, that goes in the box on the left. And I'm going to pray over that right now. Father, as we think about the events of the Holy Week, we look at the life of Jesus. We see how important it was by those who recorded um, these events in Scripture that all, <clears throat> all four Gospels speak to this event. I pray, Lord God, that as we look at Jesus, we do not try to fashion Him into our convenience, but that we seek Him because of who He is and truly what He can do. And that as that triumphal entry happens in our own lives, that, Father, it is truly something that speaks to our hearts and that your Son comes in and molds something new, a new creation that cannot be affected by other kingdoms, that cannot be manipulated by other men or women or circumstance. But the power of Jesus Christ is eternal and it's life-giving. 
Oh, that we would know our Lord and Savior deeper and deeper. Use our gifts today. Use them as, a, as an exaltation, just like Mary. It's an exaltation as we give our gifts today that you would be pleased. Thank you, Father. To you be a, the glory. Amen.